Hello there, Oliver Callan here. I was in all this week, so you're welcome to our weekly podcast. And so our choice chats of the week. On Monday's show, the New York Times bestselling author Evan Thomas discussed his book Road to Surrender. It's all about the lesser known characters behind the atomic bombs dropped in Japan by the US in the final weeks of World War II. We spoke to Irish actor Fiona Glascott, who's the star of Brooklyn. She's in the Potterverse as well. And now the martini shot at the Galway Film Flat. Who cares? The hidden crisis of caregiving and how we solve it. Emily Kenway spoke passionately to us about her experience of becoming her late mother's carer. Spike Island off the coast of Cove is now a cultural attraction and phenomenon. It'll be revived in book form by former CEO Corkman John Crotty, who came in to speak about how cool the place is and why you should go there. And on Friday's show, Patricia Ford, the award-winning author behind 20 children's books, talked about her important role as our new Laureate Nanogue celebrating children's literature. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. Oppenheimer is the guy who's getting all the attention this summer with the movie and Killian Murphy in it and uh, well known of course for his role in the development of the atomic bomb but blockbuster author Evan Thomas has produced an exciting new book Road to Surrender Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II and it's all about the lesser spotted characters behind the dropping of two atomic bombs in Japan in 1945 Evan Thomas joins us now from the United States Good morning sir Good morning Oliver um, it's an amazing subject. Where do you begin on, on something that a story of this scale and the results of which continue to reverberate? Well, it was almost inevitable that the United States was going to drop this, these bombs. We'd spent $2 billion building it. Uh, the Japanese didn't want to surrender. But that doesn't mean that the people who are making this decision didn't agonize over it. And the case in point that I write about, and it's a, it's a dramatic tale, is uh, the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. He keeps a diary. And he, in, the, in the spring of 1945, he realizes the time is coming when we're going to have to use this thing. And he writes in his diary, he calls it by its code name, S1, but also refers to it as the awful, the terrible, the diabolical, a Frankenstein monster. He knows just how awful this thing is going to be. He didn't know quite how awful it is, actually. It's, it's even worse than they think it's going to be. But the point is that there's a lot of agonizing on the American side. And I also get into the Japanese side on this, which in many ways is more important, because people always wonder, did we really have to drop these bombs? Did we really have to do it? Mm -hmm. And the answer, I believe, is yes, because the Japanese we're just not going to surrender. And I, I build my Japanese story around a, a Japanese foreign minister, a fellow named Togo, who's the only one who wants to surrender, the only one in the high command of the Japanese government. And the rest of them are just virtually suicidal. They just want to fight to the, to the bitter end, to bleed the Americans until we give them some kind of a deal. Uh, it's a very dramatic. Most people don't realize what a close thing it was, uh, how close the Japanese came to not surrendering, even with two atom bombs. There was a coup attempt on the last night, and most people don't know this, but we were getting ready to drop a third atom bomb. Did the U.S. have a third atomic bomb? The U.S. had was getting a third ready. It would have been ready by August 20th. Mm. Uh, so the, the Japanese surrender on August 15th, they had about another five days before we would have dropped a third 
atom bomb on Tokyo. How close did that come to actually happening? Pretty close. Uh, President Truman told the British embassy on August 14th, he said, sadly, he said, uh, it looks like we're going to have to drop a third atom bomb on Tokyo. And they would have had the parts, uh, they would have had the bomb assembled by about August 20th. And uh, it was it was the insight of the, the Japanese foreign minister, wasn't it? Shigenori Togo, who had to convince the Japanese to surrender. But he came pretty close to almost failing. Well, the Japanese were, it's hard to imagine because uh, they were defeated. You know, their, their fleet was sunk and their cities had been burned. But the militarists who ran the government were determined to fight to the bloody, bloody end. They, their hope was to force the, the Americans to invade and have such a overwhelming bloodbath that we would throw in the towel and say, look, okay, we won't occupy you. You can keep your emperor. Uh, no war crime trials. That's another thing that they wanted because they knew in a war crimes trial, they were all going to get hung, as seven of them were. Uh, so they, they wanted to force a, an American invasion. And that is... Uh, you know, something we were getting ready to do, but didn't want to do because we knew the loss of life on the American side was going to be at the very minimum about 30,000 people in the first month versus, say, 12,000 in the bloody battle for Okinawa. I want to take a little step back uh, in the story of Henry Stimson in particular, the U.S. Uh, Secretary of War at the time, because you mentioned that Tokyo came close to being the third site of an atomic bomb explosion. Uh, he's kept awake so, at night earlier so this spring about the firebombing of Tokyo, isn't he? Stimson, uh, the United States is firebombing Japanese cities and the Secretary of War is not happy about this. We're doing it because nothing else works. You know, we talked in World War II about precision bombing, the Americans did, and we weren't able to do it. Uh, we tried to do precision bombing in Japan with our new airplane, the B-29, and it didn't work. That, that From 30,000 feet, the jet stream, we discovered something called the jet stream, which blew the bombers off course. And so as a result, instead of trying to hit precise targets, we just started burning cities down with napalm, with, with incendiary bombs. Same thing that the British and the Americans did in Dresden in February of 1945. It was a very effective way. It was horrible, but it was effective. And it was really the only thing that, that, that worked for sure. Uh, so that we were stuck burning cities. And, and Stimson, Secretary Stimson, goes to Truman and he says he's, he's upset. This is in June 1945. He's upset with with firebombing for two reasons. One, firebombing will remind people of the Germans. He doesn't want America to be compared with the Nazis, yeah. right, at making atrocities. But two, and here's the irony, he says he's afraid if we burn down all the Japanese cities, there won't be one left to use as a backdrop for this new weapon. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty dark irony. Yeah. And, he, and Stimson writes in his diary, he says that the president laughed. Now, think about this for a second. That laugh was not some jolly ha-ha-ha laugh. That was the laugh of a bitter, gallows humor, you know, a mirthless laugh by a president who didn't know what else to do. We were trying to end this war, and there was just no way to do it. Diplomacy wasn't going to work. The Japanese weren't going to go for that. And so we end up using this even worse bomb. It's extraordinary considering that the firebomb 
on Tokyo. I mean, there's one occasion, is there, where 100,000 civilians die yeah. uh, in pretty much a single military operation. How do they not consider that was going to be enough? Well, they didn't really know what they were doing, to tell you the truth. But it's, they find out from the Japanese they've killed 100,000 people. We know now that was more people than died in six hours in any battle in history. Mm -hmm. But that's not enough because the Japanese have, have this willingness to absorb terrible punishment in this idea that eventually, if they force the Americans to invade, we would bleed so much, we'd give them what they wanted. What did they want? They wanted the Americans not to occupy Japan. And they wanted to keep their imperial structure. They wanted to keep the emperor in charge. Really, that's a way of saying keeping the military in charge. Yeah. The people who yeah. want to run Japan, they want to be in charge. They don't want war crime trials. As it was when they finally did surrender, seven of them were hung in war crimes trials. Others sentenced to life imprisonment. Uh, to, to, to Joe, the former prime minister, shot himself, failed, and then we, we did hang him. He missed. He shot himself and missed, and then we hung him. So that was the fate awaiting the Japanese leaders if they, if they didn't surrender. On the Japanese side of the or story. They, or if they did surrender. Well, they do surrender, but it, it, it takes a very long time to get to that point, doesn't it? And it's extraordinary, as you said earlier, that it, it takes two atomic bombs, but they're not even ready to sub surrender. So uh, the story of the Japanese foreign minister, Togo, is absolutely crucial to this moment in history and his part in it. And we never knew about him until now. Togo is one of these heroes in history that you never heard, heard of, never heard about. Uh, but he is the one guy in the Japanese government I mean, the, the, the Supreme War Council, the people actually run Japan, who are mostly military people, almost all, they're all military people except for Togo. And only Togo sees that the country is dying and they need to surrender. And it's Togo who persuades the emperor, who's a rather passive figure up to now, mm -hmm. he persuades the emperor, look, you've got to surrender. And the emperor does it at, at great risk to everybody because there's a, there's a, there's a coup attempt on the last night. The military tries to tries to run a coup in the palace and smash the recording of the emperor's surrender speech before it can be played to the nation. So it's it's a very close run thing. It's a close run. Uh, that's after two atomic bombs. So that's after two atomic bombs. Yeah, the, the the crazy militarists are still rebelling. They they kill the head of the imperial guard and take over the palace. As we know, the Japanese do surrender in the end. What what becomes of uh, the foreign minister Togo? Togo is sentenced to twenty years imprisonment as a war criminal, which is nuts. Uh, but you know, we were these war crimes trials were sweeping with a broad brush, and he he was sentenced with the others because he had been in the government, the Japanese government, uh, at the time of Pearl Harbor, and that was enough to get him sentenced to twenty years in prison. He dies there. Uh, pernicious anemia, uh, really exhaustion, after about uh, about three years in prison. And you're pretty devastated about what happens to him, aren't you? Well, yes. I mean, uh, you know, it was a miscarriage of justice. Uh, Togo probably saved millions of lives. He saved American lives because we didn't have to invade. But he also saved <clears throat> millions of Japanese lives because the Japanese either would have to have had to fight an invasion, which would have been a, a bloodbath, or more likely, they would have starved to death as we blockaded Japan. They were on the verge of famine, smallest rice crop in years. Uh, we were cutting their rail lines so they couldn't get their rice to their people. They were, by, say, Christmas 1945, they were going to be dying by the tens of millions from famine and, 
and disease and, you know, you know, civil war, all these terrible things that follow that. Togo spared Japan that by by persuading the emperor to surrender. So he should be remembered and, and venerated. And of course, the influence of Japan at the time is, is running all the way from China right across Vietnam because this was an empire on the march. So it, the Japan we're talking about is a much wider sphere of influence than, than, than it is today. Yeah, we're not, we're not talking just about saving Japanese people. We're talking about saving Chinese, Vietnamese. It's estimated that about 250,000 people a month were dying in occupied Asia, Southeast Asia and Asia, because the, 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 the occupation was so cruel. Here's one example. <clears throat> there was a huge famine in Vietnam because the Japanese took the rice crop and tried to convert rice into aviation fuel, which they failed at. But it meant that hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese died of starvation. Yeah. That's how brutal the Japanese occupation was. I think what's fascinating is that the way you convey that it's impossible for us now to judge the decision to drop the bombs by just looking at the act in isolation. And I found it interesting you decided to write a lot of the book in the present tense, which conveys the urgency of what's happening in the context and all how everything is connected in the moment that all these decisions are being made. Well, I wanted to get at you know, it's easy to judge these things in hindsight, uh, that there was no choice to use these things, but that doesn't mean that they were happy about it. In fact, Stimson, on the morning that he shows the photo photographs of Hiroshima, what, what Hiroshima looks like after we've bombed it, he shows the photographs to Harry Truman, the president. Stimson has a heart attack. Wow. Now, is that a coincidence? I don't think so. The stress of it was obviously enormous. How has the book been received in Japan, or do you know yet, since it's, it's still fairly fresh? I, I don't know yet. I just sent it to uh, the grandsons of my hero, really, Togo, mm -hmm. to see how they feel about it. Uh, the Japanese are very ambivalent about this. They don't really like to talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they skip past it. It's just such a terrible period in their history. So that I, my guess is the book will be uh, greeted with silence in Japan. I, I know that just from, or I, I'm guessing at that, just from having dealt with the Japanese. This is not a subject they like to return to. Is it a subject that you think has been discussed sufficiently in the United States in terms of the, the moral ambiguity that exists there? On the one hand, saying we don't want to look like Hitler in terms of carrying out atrocities, but after lots of firebombing that kills hundreds of thousands of people, ultimately they drop the, the, the worst and most demonic weapon we've ever had in world history. I think most people in the United States, and the polls show that about two-thirds of the people thought the bomb was justified, but a th about a third think it's not. In our universities at our higher levels of education, people are generally against the atom bomb. The, the scholarship there has been, gee, we really didn't have to use that thing. The Japanese would have surrendered anyways. I, I disagree with that scholarship. I don't think that. I think the most recent scholarship actually shows the opposite from Japanese diaries and so forth. It, because as I say in the book, the Japanese just were not ready to surrender. So Americans have sort of a mixed view of this. I, I started this book with uncertainty. I, I, I wondered, did we really have to drop those bombs? And did we have to drop two of them? Was that you know really necessary? And it was only after I'd read a lot of Japanese records that I came to believe that actually, yes, we did. There really was no choice. But again, I wanted to get at how hard that was for everybody on both sides. I wanted to get at the human drama here of what it was like for pretty ordinary people 
who have this terrible power to use these things feel there is no choice, but are agonizing. As I say, Stipson had a heart attack. Uh, I write about Tui Spots, uh, an American Air Force commander, and he writes in his own diary. He, 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 he's the one who gets the order to drop the bomb, and he, he does it, but he, he writes in his diary he's against it. But then is persuaded that it will actually save lives. So it, you know, it's just not right to think that we were uh, anything but agonized over all this. Uh, there, you know, there wasn't a lot of debate in it. In a sense, we didn't really debate not using it because it seemed like there was no real alternative. But that, but I wanted to get at the human drama here, and there was a lot of it. Uh, and you absolutely capture that, uh, even though. Some of the, the men involved obviously die with enormous amounts of regret. You like to think that their actions were overall, um, as you say, they saved lives. But that isn't always the common view, is it? No, it's it's not. I think a lot of people think it was unnecessary. And if only we just offered the Japan to keep its emperor, they would have surrendered and everything would have been hunky-dory. I just don't think the record shows that. I, I, I think the Japanese were in a kind of a crazy place uh, circa 1945. And I, I think the record actually is pretty overwhelming on this, uh, that the Japanese were just, I don't know what other words to use for it, suicidal, mm-hmm. uh, determined to fight to this bitter, bitter, bloody end in the hopes that America would give up and allow them to keep their imperial military-run system. That was a forlorn hope ended only by not one, but two atom bombs. There's a meeting of the high command on August 9th, after we dropped the second bomb. And the war minister says, wouldn't it be beautiful for the entire country to die like a beautiful flower, like a cherry blossom? Let them drop 100 bombs. That's their state of mind. So they're prepared for the end of Japan. It's a story about something that happened 80 years ago and ordinary people making decisions, but really the relevance is about today. How worried are you about today and the proliferation of nuclear weapons and the fact that we're um, Europe is at war right now? Well, we're very worried. Uh, you know, there was a taboo that one of the good things, if I, I guess you could say, that came out of dropping bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki is that it was so awful that it created a taboo against using these weapons. They, they actually, American policymakers use that word taboo. I've, I've read it in, in meetings of the National Security Council in the 1950s. And that taboo, I fear, is going to wear off. The people think you can have some kind of a limited nuclear war. Yeah, I, I, you know, in 1945, there was no risk of escalation by the other side because we were the only people who had the bomb. Japan didn't have the bomb. Today, if you start a nuclear war, both sides are going to have it. I'm, I'm more worried about China than Russia. Really? That if we, in defending, if in defending Taiwan, we start attacking the Chinese mainland, I fear the Chinese will use a tactical nuclear weapon against our fleet, and we're off and running. And maybe you can have a limited nuclear war, but I don't want to find out. It's an amazing story. Um, It's obviously, if we don't learn the histories or the lessons from history, it does tend to repeat itself. Uh, Obviously, Oppenheimer's coming out. It's going to increase all the interest around this. I presume you're going to be out and about talking about these three men uh, rather than the, the, what what was, who was kind of the star of the show, Oppenheimer, wasn't he? Yeah, Oppenheimer, he's in the book. I mean, he is a star of the show and the movie I'm looking forward to because I think it's going to get at this moral ambiguity. Uh, But, you know, there are lots of ways to tell this story. 
And I tell it, you know, by the by the people who actually made who made the decision on both sides, including on the Japanese side. And there's a drama in there that I think people don't quite understand just how how, how close it was, how close the Japanese came to not surrendering right. <laughs> to to forcing the, uh, a third atom bomb. Uh, on the subject of Oppenheimer, he wasn't convinced that the bomb was going to have such an effect in Japan. Was it something to do? He said it's, it's just going to look like a firecracker. Yeah, I, you know, it's hard to know what he's really thinking. Uh, he predicted it would kill 20,000 people. Uh, it killed 70,000. Uh, so, you know, a lot more. Uh, he was, he, look, he was traumatized by it too. He, he, there's this scene after the first bomb is dropped. This probably would be in the movie where he comes in like a prize fighter, you know, we're holding his hands up, you know, we did it. But then everybody gets drunk and throws up in the bushes and is kind of miserable about the whole thing because they know this monster that they have unleashed on the world. What a thought to carry with you for the rest of your days. I think it, it traumatized him. We'll see what how the movie portrays this, but he, he died an unhappy man. Yeah. In the meantime, we have this amazing story and let's hope these lessons are learned from it. It's been a pleasure, Evan Thomas, New York Times bestselling author of Road to Surrender, Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II. Thanks a million, Evan. Thanks, Oliver. The Galway Film Flab begins today, that renowned festival for the serious film fanatics among us. Six days of screenings, workshops and obviously gawking at famous people. Let's face it, that's what it's all about. And it features the world premiere of The Martini Shot, which stars Fiona Glascott, who's in our London studio. Good morning to you, Fiona. Hi, Oliver. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And, and before we get into the, the name dropping and uh, your beautiful life in movies <laughs> and movie sets, we, we need, obviously, to judge you based on where you're from, what you've been up to all your life. So tell us a little bit of about your, your early life, please. Uh, well, I grew up in Carrick and Shore in County Tipperary and uh, had a very, you know, normal, lovely Irish upbringing. And then I went to Trinity College in Dublin to study drama. Uh-huh. And then I've, I've actually got pretty lucky very quickly, really. I um, I ended up in Fair City pretty early and also started to do a lot of plays in Dublin, in the Abbey and in the Gate. And at that at time, you know, well, for years, really, there's been so many film productions happening in Ireland. I was able to sort of learn the, the film side of things, doing little roles here and there to sort of really, really work on my craft and build up a, a CV. And uh, that was it, really. And then I left for London and I've been very lucky to travel a lot which has been one of the wonderful joys of this job for me because I love travelling and play so many different characters and, and meet so many fantastic people it's been really wonderful You're busy busy uh, the, going <laughs> through the just stepping back a small bit to, to the uh, the Abbey and the Gate Theatres where you did quite a bit of work what sort yeah. of grounding did that give you because Irish theatre is sometimes looked at forlornly it's controversial but it's, it's really important for actors isn't it this, this, the scene here Absolutely. I'm. I mean, if you look at the history of our theatre in this country, and also being Irish, we have such an amazing literary history of books and poetry and songs and stories, and all of that comes together in the theatre. I feel in Ireland, and especially going to a, a drama school that was a theatre school that got you ready to go on stage to actually yeah. be able to go on the Abbey stage and on the Gate stage and and, and bring wonderful works 
to be able to do that in front of people is is fantastic. And it was a, a, a brilliant grounding for the start of my career because I started just in theatre mm-hmm. and then had to learn. It's a completely different medium film, which I know everybody knows, but it's honestly, you're always in the way. I mean, I'm still <laughs> always in the way. It's unbelievable, <laughs> even though I've been doing it for so long and I feel incredibly comfortable on a film set. It's just one of those things. Whereas on stage, you can play together. You've spent so much time rehearsing and mm. you get to work on a on a, on a piece of theatre over and over again. And different audiences bring different energies. Yes. And to be able to do that on the Abbey stage is, was really special for me, certainly. Yeah. And I'm very proud of that. But we can hear that in your voice. Your, your oh. parents were also involved involved in, in amateur dramatics, weren't they? And, and musicals that's, and things. That's right, yeah. Yeah, my mother's part of uh, Brewery Lane Theatre Company and um, she acted and then directed and at the moment she's um, sort of looking for plays for them to do. That's sort of where her interest lies now, but she's very much involved. And my father did a lot of musicals, so I was always around the theatre. Uh, when I was very young and that's 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 really what made me want to be an actress, you know. That's really part of the vocational aspect of the whole thing, isn't it? Just to be part of the world and to understand it because it's a peculiar thing to jump into otherwise if you don't have it in the family. I suppose it is, yes. I mean, I have met people who have jumped into it from nowhere just because of because of the love of it. But maybe the fact that, you know, I also love films too, so maybe I would have been more interested in, in being on film had I not had my parents, you know, have me in a theatre from a very young age um, and constantly talking about uh, plays and writers and actors and performances and accents. So, yeah, it really did. Also, I, I, from a very young age, I wanted to be an actress. So what I wanted to be a synchronised swimmer first. Oh, right, OK. Um, and I'm st- I'm going to I'm gonna get there, Oliver, right. somehow. Still working um, on that one. Some, I'm going to work on that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, but then I... Uh, but from oh, from a very young age, I wanted to be an actress, and I was very lucky that I had that around me. And, and my parents are still hugely supportive, but were incredibly supportive at the time because nobody in our family was a, a professional actor or singer uh-huh. or anything. So they really were like, okay, well, you know. You smashed through that barrier, indeed. Uh, A lot of people will know you. Originally, uh, we would have might might have spotted you for the first time in terms of this is the stardom I'm coming to is in the movie Brooklyn opposite Saoirse Ronan. Is that the the film that people sort of stop you in the street and chat you about? Yeah, they do. And I, I, I love it. It's really wonderful. It was an incredible film to be part of and do. But that story of that family mm. affected people so much that for a few years afterwards, um, I people would stop me in the street or when I was, you know, queuing up in a coffee shop or something and, and tell me stories about their family wow. and their lives. Um, and I felt really privileged. It, it's a really, it was a really special moments when that happened. That that and I really wanted to know what their stories were and they were they were very moved by it I think it, it really affected a lot of people It's like that dark history of Ireland Yes absolutely and we have so much don't we yeah. and it was so it was told in such a beautiful way and it was so beautifully acted I mean Saoirse mm. Ronan what an extraordinary performer and she was just I thought she just did the most beautiful job of taking us through that journey that must have been absolutely terrifying and I was thinking today uh, coming in it popped into my mind about when we were shooting the scene in um, on the docks when myself and Jane Brennan were saying bye-bye and how everybody was destroyed (laughs) 
everybody, the crew, everyone, you looked at her lovely face and, you know, it was heartbreaking. But a lot of the time we were filming it, you know, there was just a really deep feeling of, of loss and understanding and respect for those people who have actually gone through this, who had gone through it and, yeah. you know, on while you were filming. So it was a really incredible experience to, to do. I mean, it's kind of, um, it's, it's, it's amazing that as a, as, a, as a performer, you have to carry the story around with you sometimes, isn't it? Um, yeah, yes, exactly, yeah. I was going to go to, from to the fantasy now, which is where we all go to hide from dark <laughs> histories and reckonings with our past. So you're you're in the Potterverse now through Fantastic Beasts, and uh, I mean the movie, the second one that, that, that grossed about six hundred and fifty million dollars. Yeah, how has wow. that changed things for you? Because you're now in the realm of the super fans and and, and the selfies and the fanatics. Oh, that's very sweet. Um, I I, I don't look like. Um, Professor McGonagall when I'm walking around the streets. <laughs> so I don't get, I, I don't get, you know, what Eddie would get or, or, or any of the others. But what I do get is um, people are so excited by the Harry Potter world and mm. I, I am as well. And so it, you get so much warmth and conversation about it and excitement so that when people do talk about it and want to discuss it then it's it's something that's really enjoyable and you're right it isn't you know the dark history of Ireland it, it's yeah. the fantasy world and as you say we all need a bit of fantasy <laughs> we all love a bit of fantasy so it's great to be able to dive in there and talk about wands and you know I and I, and I had Maggie Smith's actual wand that she wow. used in the original films that they gave because me because obviously the role is made famous by Maggie Smith in the original absolutely. Harry Potter movies uh, oh so you're God. using the actual props from, from her time on the films her actual wand yeah I couldn't believe it and it was given to me everybody sort of stood around and there was a real moment when it was handed to me and they said this is actually the wand and it was very exciting it was really exciting it's one thing to have the wand but what about the, the voice that Maggie Smith uh, created oh. for Professor McGonagall um, I know I mean it's terrifying you can only imagine you know I mean she's such an incredibly She's a legend, Maggie yeah. Smith, obviously, all her work over the years and played this part so perfectly. Um, I had a, a fantastic dialect coach to help me and we worked on it for weeks and weeks and she gave me so many little tricks and listening, you know, when to listen, how to listen, what to do, um, to the point that when I got onto the set, which is, you know, huge these this film is it's another sort of really exciting thing about it was uh, the size of the studio you know wow. the actual vastness the the difference be- between there's something like the martini shot where we might do four or five scenes in a day mm-hmm. because it's an independent movie to i think i spent i think we spent five days on one scene really fantastic yeah and i was like what <laughs> it was it's sort of does it, uh, amazing. Does it drive you, know? you a bit mad? Um, because you're waiting um, around a long time, aren't you? To do very, uh, I don't want to say very little, because obviously very important <laughs> what you're doing. But I mean, <laughs> one scene in five days. I think a lot of people are one thinking, scene in five days. what's going on? Well, I suppose the thing is, is that because there's always something happening in those five days because mm. they, just the amount of time that's taken and, and the time that has to be taken and, and I suppose visual effects. I mean, I couldn't really talk about it massively because of on my side, mm-hmm. but you always feel um, active because you're kind of always waiting. You're always ready. Yeah. So you might go on and do a rehearsal and then they might go, OK, well, you'll have to have a little break now. We might just... Sh- 
excuse me, shoot like this part of the scene and then that part of the scene. But it doesn't, it didn't feel like I was waiting around for, for, for days because you're sort of always kind I of see. ready. And to be honest with you, something like Fantastic Beasts, when you're looking, when you're on those sets and you're, and you're looking at the people in costumes and, you know, there was one day where we had, and I don't think it ended up in the film, but we, we were in, we were just surrounded by owls. So there was a day wow. where there were owls everywhere huge ones, small ones, little ones, you know, and there was a falcon and there was, you know, there's, there's, and there's always some, there's so many people to talk to because there's so many members of the crew yeah. did the original Harry Potter films and they're all fans of the books. Mm. So it, it, it just, it just feels very alive, you know. This kind of um, factory of fantasy that you're living in. This is a lovely way to spend yeah, your day. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, you're you're currently in the HBO Max series Julia, which is a huge hit. Um, you probably made it a while ago, but we're only seeing it going out now. Ninety three percent on on Rotten Tomatoes. This is going down very well. This show, isn't really? it? Really? Yeah. Oh my god, that's great! Yeah. I didn't realize. Yes, it is, and I adore it. And I um, we actually our second series will be out later this year. Ah. Um, yeah, it's an amazing it's an amazing show. It's um, Sarah Lancashire as Julia Child, the American chef, who wrote uh, Mastering the Art of French Cooking mm-hmm. and managed to get it published through me, Judith Jones, yeah. who I play in Knopf, um, the, the publishing house, and I became her editor. And Judith Jones, who I play, is also an, in- an incredible woman. She used to um, translate Sartre and Camus and Simone de Beauvoir, and she edited all of John Updike's books and and Tyler. And she's she's really she's really a, an extraordinary woman. And yeah. then also loved France, so she made such a big deal out of Julia Child's book that they published it. And then from that, Julia Child did her. Uh, cooking show and that was apparently the first ever cooking show on TV. Really? Yeah, and our show is the first year of our show is the first year of her cooking show, uh-huh. and then the second year of our show is the second year of her cooking show. Um, and it's 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 a it's a beautiful show. It's Sarah Lancashire, as we know, is incredible. David Hyde Pierce plays her husband Paul. BB uh, Newworth is in it. Isabella Rossellini. It's 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 an incredible job, and uh, also we get to eat okay, amazing yeah, okay. food. <laughs> So the food is good. Uh, the, your character, Judith, being a publisher, she rescued certain books from the from the reject pile. She's a fascinating character in that she era did. of publishing. She really did. She was working for Doubleday in Paris mm-hmm. and her job was to write back to um, the books that were being rejected and, you know, explain. And she came across The Diary of Anne Frank, mm. which I think had been published in France but hadn't gone out around the world. And uh, the, she picked it up and was found that picture that's on the cover of the book that we yeah. all know so arresting that she sat down and she read it. And she actually read it straight through. And she made such a big, big deal out of it and said, you have to print this. This is extraordinary extraordinary and Doubleday did and yeah. Doubleday printed it and then it went to America and it went to uh, all over the world and it, which is it's I think it's a remarkable legacy of That's unbelievable. Um, yeah. Judith Jones to have yeah because the it's such a historical document isn't mm. it and I mean amazing amazing achievement to to have uh, rescued yeah. it from a reject pile it's hard to I believe I know now we know yeah. that you 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 obviously got the vocal coaches and you got Dame Maggie Smith's version of McGonagall down, but you're very <laughs> you. very good at, at an American accent in particular in the Martini shot, which is the movie oh, that's, that's premiering kind. in the Galway film. Well, I, I just kind of say because a lot of Irish actors, it's a difficult one to just completely master, and uh, because there's some of our vowels seem to get in the way, don't they? I don't know how do you manage to do the American accent in in this film. Um, 
Well, I'm just floating on a cloud. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's really kind of you. Uh, I suppose I, 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 I've, I've been auditioning for American jobs for a very long time, and I've had different dialect coaches for each each thing so I've sort of been working on an American accent kind of constantly throughout my career um, and it's, you're right some things get in the way but some are kind of similar yeah. and it's 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 getting the right ear to 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 sort of pinpoint the ones that are similar and list, watching a lot of American TV and, yeah, and films yeah. does help as well because yeah. it sort of goes into your ear and also Matthew M- Modine being American helps it helps if somebody is there with you. True. I mean, it's scary because obviously you can go, well, if I go wrong, then they'll know. That's what I was going to say, you know, because when you have an American there, you can kind of spot if someone's not quite fully American. Uh, tell, exactly. <laughs> tell us about the, the martini shot. There's a very peculiar and particular sense of humour here, isn't there? Yes, it, yes, it is. It's a, uh, it's a funny one to describe. So I, yeah. what I'm, what I'm going to say about the film is that um, imagine if God was a terminally ill film director <laughs> who comes to Ireland to make his last great work of art. That's what I'm going to that's say. That's Matthew that's, Modine. That's Matthew Modine. And imagine that you're the producer of that movie mm-hmm. and that's me. So not only do you have the normal things that you have to deal with when you're producing, which are, of course are huge and difficult and all that kind of thing, but you also have the fact that your director is bringing actors back from the dead. So yes. you've got to deal with agents, you've got to deal with unions, he keeps changing locations. And it's it, that's basically where we are. And it's, it's, it's a very funny, um, but I think really interesting look at mortality and it's it's it ultimately ends up being very moving, yeah. but um, yeah, I'm I I think it's 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 very it's very funny. I mean, we've got well, you know, the best, John, John Cleese in there. Yeah, the best best type of comedy that has an actual serious point in the end of it. Oh, I'm and really I presume that that's why that, the yeah. likes of John Cleese decided to get involved when he picked up this script. I, I, yes, I I I guess you. I think you're right. Yeah, and and Sir Derek Jacobi and. Stuart Townsend and Matthew Modine himself, you know, mm-hmm. um, playing that playing that main role of of God, who's called Steve, which is also uh, kind of hilarious. Um, yeah, I, I, I really I really like where the the film takes us because it it sort of has a look at w- w- what we do as humans, which is is quite often if, if we're not happy with the way things are, we we quite often change our maybe situation or relationship or and it's that thing of well you know you can't run away from yourself wherever you go you're going to take yourself with you and is it is it better to just maybe try and deal with what's going on rather than change everything out there. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that's really I like that I think it's really interesting and I'm in Mary the person I play Mary where she's I, I feel like she's just so busy with work that it, it just means that there can't be any room for anything else and in that way you know you don't have to say well like I, I, I don't I just you know I, I don't have time for a relationship or yeah, social life I'm too busy I love Instead that line actually, that Matthew Modine's character the director says I've never noticed you know other people can be lonely too so that's kind of yeah, a strange yeah. place where the laughs comes from but it does somehow work uh, so the, the martini shot is having its world premiere at the Galway Film Fla this yes. Thursday Fiona will you be at the Galway Film Fla I will brilliant I am really excited about okay. it because I've never been to the Galway Fla so you're going to have a blast of a time Go oh, away, I'm going to have a blast. Go away, filmflat.com. And you're having a blast anyway, so continued success to you, Fiona Glascott, with uh, the beautiful <laughs> name and everything attached to it. That's and I'm sure they're kind. all very proud of you down in Carrick on Shore in Tip. Aww. 
Now you're all very welcome back. Emily Kenway became her late mother's primary carer at the age of 31. She writes about her experience and that of others in her book called Who Cares? The Hidden Crisis of Caregiving and How We Solve It. And she joins us this morning from BBC in London. Emily, good morning to you. Good morning, Oliver. And thank you very much for coming on to share this story with us. That was a young age to become a carer for your mum. Can you tell us about the circumstances under which you pretty much became your, your mother's sole carer? Yeah, so I mean, lots of people do end up becoming carers when they're a bit younger, but you're right, it is normally sort of age 45 and up. So my mum was single, um, so there wasn't a kind of partner in her life that would have perhaps uh, filled that role. And she also, I have an older sister, but she had two small children. Uh, and my mum's siblings uh, didn't live in London where where I lived at that time. Uh, and so they did help Um but I was the kind of main person, the default person through the years that she was sick, sometimes uh, requiring extremely intensive support and sometimes less so, but especially towards the end. I mean, your mother, she went through an incredibly, it was an incredibly difficult and painful illness. And if you don't mind explaining a little bit about that, because it gives Mm. us maybe an overview of your typical day and night, because it's it's, it's all all hours of the clock, aren't they? It is, yeah. And I'm so glad that you said day and night, because people often don't realise this. But lots of conditions and illnesses really require kind of round-the-clock support or kind of vigilance, you know, because things can change. So my mum had uh, leukaemia and lymphoma, so blood cancers, mm-hmm. um, and also had a kind of whole load of other things go wrong during that time. So she had a lot of chemotherapy, and that causes lots of other kinds of symptoms. She also had a stem cell transplant, which her body tried to reject. Mm-hmm. So um, it wasn't just the cancer, or even in some ways it wasn't the cancer, you know, it was it was the treatments as well that made her increasingly debilitated, distressed, um, and in, in very much in discomfort. And so, you know, I always say, everyone's caring experience is to some extent different, but I think a lot of us will say that there wasn't a kind of typical day that much of the time because these things change so much. You know, you don't ever know, is this going to be a good day or a bad day? Is this going to be a day where she's beset by kind of vomiting and constant nausea or is she actually going to manage to eat like two spoonfuls of shreddies and that's going to be, you know, a great success. So, I mean, our days involved, of course, me, you know, washing her. She loved to have her teeth clean, even if she couldn't get her body washed. That felt really important for her mm-hmm. dignity, maybe some physio, trying to help her take in some nutrition, endless hospital visits and just, you know, the kind of waiting around that comes with that, which is actually incredibly stressful when someone's really unwell. It's not an easy thing for them to um, do a journey and then wait for an appointment. Yeah. Uh, my mum was also incontinent and this is not something that gets talked about a lot. No, It's actually really common um, and that added to, of course, all of this. And uh, I mean, this is the, literally the thing that all of us are afraid to talk about, aren't they? And, mm-hmm. and it's 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 very important for carers. They will know this world, but the the physical nature and the hygiene and everything around caring for a person who you know so well and having to do so so intimately. Yes, and honestly, we have to change this. Um, in Ireland, one in seven older adults have urinary incontinence today, and it will be higher than that, right? Because a lot of people just never disclose it. They hide it because it's it's so shameful in our culture. And it's doing 
everyone a disservice. You know, I used to be part of a carer support group that met online, which was really helpful. And one of the things we would end up having to kind of support each other with and give advice for was how you deal with not the incontinence itself although that can be quite tricky because if someone is physically unable to move changing their incontinence where is actually quite hard yeah. but actually how do you help someone not feel ashamed of being incontinent you know and we just don't have any literacy as a culture around that at all and it creates such a difficult situation for the caregiver and for the care receiver. What do you think we can do about that? I mean, part of me just thinks we need to grow up, to be honest with yeah. you. Like, we we have this idea about ourselves that we're kind of above nature, mm -hmm. right? And we're very uncomfortable with the idea that we are, you know, fundamentally we're animals. Yes, we have, you know, all of these other facets, but our bodies do break down and we need to find a way to... Um, accept that and talk about it. One of the things I talk about in my book as well is trying to um, like sensitize people to these facts, to the fact that you'll probably need to care for someone you love at some point mm -hmm. when they're much younger. So um, it's not talked about very often, but there are lots of children who actually perform these kinds of caring roles. Um, in the UK, which is the, the stat I know, um, there are around 800,000 according to some estimates. So they're, they're often helping with like siblings or with parents who've got um, a condition of some sort. And of course, children also experience bereavements, right? Like my nieces saw yeah. their grandma, my mum pass away. And we don't ever get taught at school about any of these things that are going to happen that if we did have that put into, you know, citizenship, relationship education, sex education, you know, just the education of what will happen as someone in a body, then that would help us to start to put it into our culture better in the future. Mm -hmm. I think I totally agree with you and I know where you're coming from there. Um, in, the, in the relationship that you're having with your mum and you're taking care of her in this way and mm. uh, it's taking over your life, it's obviously, this is her existence as well. What does that do to the relationship between you as a daughter and her as your mum? Yeah, um, so... I experienced what um, is is really common and I kind of only realised was common when I started doing the research for the book, which is a kind of flip of the relationship. So you start to find yourself kind of um, taking on more of a traditional parenting role for your parent and it creates a kind of um, dissonance in your mind it's it's I mean I guess if I'd been older maybe I'd have had a kind of slower run into that and expected yeah. it more mm -hmm. but it is quite a shocking reversal of roles and kind of uncomfortable for everyone involved because we don't have a way of thinking about it you know so and then of course um one of the an, another thing people don't talk about but is so prevalent amongst carers is that you know caring for someone is really difficult right and the person who needs care is often very unhappy very upset doesn't want to feel like they're a dependent and so of course it creates kind of irritabilities and irritations that as the carer you try to not show because you you know you love that person yeah. but it puts this huge mental pressure on you mm. to kind of hold it together in the face of all of these things 
I think it's a, it's amazing, particularly when you're describing and people asking you um, what what do you mean when you're writing about caregivers and they're <laughs> assuming the the professions, aren't they? The medical professions, and, and I'm amazed by the just the description of the individual who's no longer sure they're an individual, but has become an accessory to someone else's needs. This is the life of a carer. Yes, yes, and um, it's one of my kind of most anger-inducing things that when people assume that most care is carried out by paid care workers, actually adult social care workers, there are far fewer of them than family carers. In Ireland, there are about 500,000 family carers, probably more because people often don't um, like recognise themselves to be such. Yeah. That's about 10% of your population. Mm. So we're really talking about something that um, is affecting a lot of people and importantly is going to affect way more people in the future. Um, and obviously it's like a natural part of loving someone. I'm not suggesting we should kind of pathologize it and be, you know, it's it's a normal part of being a wife or a mom or a daughter and <laughs> women are the main ones who do it. But we do need to kind of bring it into the light so we can provide more support. You, you said most carers are women. And uh, mm. I mean, there are women who are who have careers and jobs going on in the background. Yes, yes. A huge uh, proportion of carers are also juggling paid employment and trying to do both these things at once, sometimes also having children, you know, whilst caring for a parent with dementia or who's had a stroke or whatever. Um, And it's this immensely stressful um, kind of life wrecking situation in a way. And it does fall much more heavily on women. There are men, of course, who are carers, but that's usually because... Uh, there isn't a kind of woman who would be the default to do it around. Yeah. So if, for example, my mum had had two boys instead of two girls, then maybe she would have had a, a man caring for her. Um, but it is usually women and it's this kind of assumption that it's more natural for women and that um, women are just kind of OK with it. You went on a hike a couple of years ago and this uh, idea of it all, just the responsibility falling on women, um, became very stark with the people you were chatting to. Yes. So I um, did a I really like long distance hiking and I did the coast to coast, which goes from one side of England to the other for 11 days. And I met some uh, men there kind of in their 60s who were also doing it. And, um, you know, as we you get to know people, you pass them on different days. And I was like, oh, where's your wife? And a couple of them said to me, oh, well, she's back home caring for um, for for. Uh, my mother and I would clarify like sorry do you mean her mother and they'd say no my mother so their wife couldn't go on this you know experience of a lifetime because she was busy caring for the husband's mother while they were out doing this incredible thing <laughs> that's extraordinary and it is just um that that idea and there's the, it's just all about the shame and stigma isn't it about the maybe the hygiene issues and the, the extremely intimate care that's required Yeah, and also um, purely the fact of being needy, right? We have this um, kind of widespread cultural obsession in lots of the world today um, that it is, you know, it's a bad thing to need help, to have to ask for support. Uh, We're obsessed with kind of feeling invulnerable and almost like godlike, right? And the reality is we need to understand that being needy is part of the human condition. We're all needy and capable, as one philosopher has said, and I think that's a much more helpful way to think about the world. And people who need care obviously have things to give as well, right? Um, So it's trying to change how we think about 
needing support from a kind of negative thing to a normal thing. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about the emotional toll then of being the mm. actual carer. And there's something called caregiver stress syndrome. Yes, so this is an American term. They love coining terms for things. Um, But I have to say, as much as I kind of laugh at that, I actually found it so helpful to discover this um, because for me it was like a checklist of things that I had gone through that I hadn't seen anywhere kind of articulate. So um, essentially it's a way of saying there is this huge emotional, mental and physical toll on carers. So carers are more likely to have depression and anxiety, more likely to have heart disease and diabetes. Carers have higher mortality rates and there is a lot of suicidalism among carers. So this syndrome is basically, you know, if if you're experiencing it, then you're probably feeling really hopeless about life, about your life. You might be having problems with sleep and with appetite. You probably get ill a lot. Um, And you might also be having feelings of wanting to hurt yourself or the person for whom you're caring. And that's a, you know, a horrific place to be. And it doesn't have to be that way. There are obviously loads of positive aspects of caring for someone, but under the current conditions, the pressure is so severe that it pushes people into this you know horrific experience it's an unwinnable war isn't it tell us about your what happened to your own job your career and your relationships outside of um obviously your relationship with your mum um so i have like a typical carer story really um i worked full time when she first got sick and then i slowly reduced from five days to four from four days to three and i eventually gave up my job entirely um in the sort of final part of her being terminally ill Mm. and so with that of course i lost income you know stretching over years um i lost a career pathway really in in a lot of ways and um also just the years of trying to work and care at the same time took a huge toll on my physical health Mm -hmm. as well um you know it's taken me you know since she died to start kind of rebuilding my health and and wellness um and i was in a a romantic relationship for uh, the first couple of years of her being sick that broke down which um i really ascribe to the kind of situation i was living in because Yes, you've got all these practical tasks that I'm describing to a greater and lesser degree, depending on how she was, at, you know, in any week. But the 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 psychological and emotional experience, you're kind of constantly anxious, right? Anything could happen at any time. So you're kind of hyper vigilant. You're waiting. If you're away from her, you're waiting for that text or that call where she's having a kind of a situation that means you've got to go to hospital really quickly. Like everything is always on high alert yeah. and it makes it very difficult to... To, to kind of navigate romantic and social spaces in the way that everyone else seems to be doing. And actually, um, you know, I was shocked during the research for the book to find how common ro- romantic relationship breakdown, marital relationship breakdown is when someone's caring. Something, um, you know, in amongst baby boomers, so a bit older than us, um, it's, it's a really um, substantial percentage of divorces that are ascribed to having to care for a parent an older parent um so so you know it's a it's a kind of very important factor in how our society is is failing people yeah it's a huge all-encompassing 
uh, thing on, on your life. And you wrote this book, Who Cares? Uh, because you don't feel society is accommodating or supporting carers. And I think we hear that message uh, loud and clear, Emily Kenway. It's, a, it's an amazing story. Thank you very much for sharing it. I often wonder what the world would be like if one day we woke up and women like you, and it is mostly women, uh, suddenly we were just without them and they just weren't available to do the caring. So uh, thanks, Emily, for sharing your story. Emily Kenway, uh, good morning and take care. Thank you. Now, it has housed the most expensive building in Irish history. It's at the centre of everything for thousands of years, from monks to Cromwell, famine, every major Irish war, standoff between Churchill and de Valera, the riot of the joy riders of the 1980s. Spike Island in Cove is one of the country's greatest and newest visitor attractions. And we're meeting a man now who's in love with the place. John Crotty, good morning to you. Morning, Oliver. How are you doing? You are you're the former CEO of Spike Island. Yes, indeed. I uh, joined there in 2016, just mm-hmm. as it was opening up to the world. And uh, what were you doing before that? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, Joe, I actually lived in the UK for 11 years previously. Oh. Um, I'm from Capraquin, County Waterford initially, yeah. but I uh, spent a happy 11 years in the UK, uh, travelling the world, seeing visitor attractions and the world wonders, and was lucky enough to come back and find one here on my doorstep. That's like a kind of a Paddington adventure you've been on there. <laughs> Have you always been uh, fond of heritage and history then as a child? Unbelievably, yes. You know, yes. I come from a, a bit of a family in the Dacia that would love the stories and oh, yeah. would love the, the, the fantasy and the folklore. So lots of uh, passionate past. Yeah, and you're not too far away from Lismore over there in Capaquin and all that's kind of a magical place, isn't it, over in West Waterford? It is. Oh, listen, proper Ireland. <laughs> the Blackwater Valley, is that what it is? is exactly. The, the River Bride and all that. Now, for people who haven't visited, uh, going to Spike Island is one of the coolest things, isn't it? Because you can only reach it by boat from Cove. Yeah, it's an adventure as soon as you set off. You know, the minute you step on that boat, you're travelling back 1,300 years through Irish history. So it really does transport you somewhere else. And it, 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 in many ways, it's the best way to see Cove, isn't it? From the water, looking back at all the Victorian landscape of the place. It, a cove is such a beautiful spot these days, Oliver, isn't it? It's got that gorgeous yeah. cathedral, you know, finished around 1920. It just looks like a really special piece of Ireland. So when you land then on this uh, kind of haunted place, because it's lined with trees and there's kind of derelict buildings along the side of it, um, uh, and there's so many layers of history, it's almost difficult to know where to begin. But it, we, we know it begins life more or less as a monastery, is that correct? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the first recorded use of the island goes back to 635 AD. Uh, that's when some mysterious monks, for, uh, led by a gentleman, uh, landed on the island. And effectively, they've set up a monastic outpost that we think might have lasted as much as a thousand years. You know, yeah. a really rich tradition going on there. Uh, and because when you land there, you're getting walked through this history. The first thing that greets you is the fortress. So from the time of the monks, what is the next kind of interesting period in the history of Spike? Do you know, it saw a lot of use by smugglers and pirates, which oh, is quite yeah. fascinating, as did all of Southern Ireland. Uh, they were all kicked out of England around the 1600s and they decided Ireland was the place to set up shop. So yeah. absolutely, people living on the island would have had the quite spectacular sight of pirate ships sailing past on a fairly regular basis. And then the wars get underway, basically. This is it. The American Revolution is what kicks it all off. Uh, in 1779, a first fortress is built on the island and that actually started over a 206 year military occupation so that's just continued right through from the British into the Irish time. And when you're on the island it's it's kind of although it's a small island it's a huge piece of land. It is. It's 104 acres. You know, it's quite difficult to see it all in one go. And I think a lot of people are surprised when they land there to, to realise that. But you, you understand that depth of history and how it could be reused in so many different ways. 
And, and it's a, it, the fortress that they built there, it, the most expensive building in Irish history, you reckon? Yeah, I, do, I cannot find comparison, Oliver. I've been doing a lot of research on this. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you're into the territory of billions upon billions to get this to the state it is today. Now, of course, they used a lot of convict labour. They even used dynamite. They were cheating at times to blow out parts of the island so they could speed up the work. Oh, right. But absolutely, an enormous construction. You know, there were thousands of labourers over an army of about 100 horses living on the island. And so how long roughly, when, when is the fort built and how long did the Brits, uh, the military presence stay there? Sure, they arrived in force, if you like, in 1804. The fortress you see today is uh, started in 1804. Yeah. They would not give it up, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, 1922, we got our, most of our country back, but we certainly didn't get Spike Island. Uh, Winston Churchill fought tooth and nail to hold on to this location because he had actually visited in 1912 and he knew how important this location was. Oh, yeah. So 1938 before we got it. I want to just jump back into the 19th century because one of the most uh, kind of atmospheric parts of the tour is when you go into those older prisons and you're faced with the accommodation of people in the in that kind of period of the middle of the 19th century around the time of the famine and so on. Yeah, it's an unbelievable period in Irish history, Oliver. You know, as if the famine isn't reminiscent enough, but the idea that they built the largest prison in the world to house those poor famine victims. Yeah. So they were victims twice over. They were victims of a cruel famine, but they were also victims uh, by being punished for trying to stay alive and just uh, having food and being sent to a prison island. What was their life like there? Horrific for the first seven years, certainly. You know, a really difficult place to live. Uh, to, to put it into numbers, there was about 2,400 crammed into the prison. Uh, the death rate was around 12%, would you believe, in the worst yeah. year. You know, an astonishing number. 1,300 prisoners now lie in unmarked graves on the island. You know, if one prisoner died in the care of the state today, there would be uproar, rightly so. Yeah. You know, back then, there was almost 300 a year. Nearly a prisoner a day was dying at one stage. And the story is beautifully told. We have passages of diaries and so on, uh, m many of them children. Uh, yes, tragically. I mean, the youngest on Spike Island was a, a poor child named David Doran. He was just 12 years of age. Would you believe he stood four foot three inches tall when wow. he was marched up the hill? You know, what an awful sight that would have uh, would have looked like. Uh, we actually have a 15-year-old as well from your neck of the woods, from County Monaghan. Oh, yeah. Yes, uh, Michael Brennan was his name. Uh, he was arrested and tried in Monaghan and he came to the island before he'd been sent off to Australia. Uh, he was sentenced to seven years transportation. He was totally innocent, can I? to say. <laughs> Absolutely, totally. So we actually have a namesake as well, Oliver. We have a John Callan from oh, County... Right. Yes, uh, John Callahan from County Manahan was 21 years of age when he was arrested in 1849 and also sent our way. Uh, another, another innocent... Uh, another uh, listen, <laughs> as they all 99% were at the same. But in fairness, they were obviously been tried for, for crimes that wouldn't be crimes anymore in a lot of cases. But there was a lot of um, penal colonies were, were the destination for a lot of people who ended up in Spike. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the majority arriving in the early days were being sent to the likes of Australia. You know, before that, they were being sent to the Caribbean, to Bermuda. Uh, you know, it, it was a long-standing thing, going right back to the time of Cromwell from the mm. 1600s, right through huge numbers being sent. So Cromwell is kind of the first to, to turn it into a prison? He is, absolutely. So it was actually Oliver Cromwell in the 1600s, of course, who, who was so successful in what he did. He yeah. had more, more prisoners than he could handle. So the solution was come up where they would transport. Uh, they actually termed it sturdy vagabonds uh, that could be sent out of the country uh, to f populate the colonies overseas. That's a good name for an indie band down there, isn't it? Sturdy <laughs> vagabonds. That's <laughs> one way to happen. Uh, so you, you move on from the famine then, obviously it becomes a very important place around uh, the time of revolution in 1916. It does. 
was, and it is connected to 1916, in that it held uh, the prisoners from the... Uh, there was a plot to smuggle arms into Ireland. You've yeah. probably heard of the Odd, the gun-running ship. Yes. Uh, they held the crew of the Odd on there, and uh, Austin Stack and Con Collins, a couple of co-conspirators. But if you fast-forward just a few years, uh, the island actually became the largest prison holding uh, the Irish Republicans who were engaged in the Irish War of Independence. Amazing. So you kind of have a five-year stretch there where it was heavily involved, but of course it was a British military base during all this time, so it saw use during World War One as well. Uh, I just vaguely remember something on the tour about a fire in one of the blocks around this period as well. Yeah, there's a great story there that allegedly there was going to be an audit in the accountants on a Friday morning mm -hmm. and mysteriously a fire broke out in the accountants office the night before and unfortunately it seemed to have got out of hand and burned the entire block to the ground. Amazing. Uh, and th there's a good story about hurling as well, isn't there, out in the exercise yard? Uh, there is, tragically so. You know, Patrick White uh, um, from Meelick in County Clare, he was playing hurling on the, uh, the ground and the slitter went out of bounds. As he went to retrieve the ball, he was shot dead in front of his prison mates. You know, a, a brutal act and nobody could understand why, yeah. but it, it came to light a few days later. There had actually been a bombing in Yall that killed a number of British troops and the belief is that the story made its way back to the British base. You had a young private who was angry about this. He had friends killed in the bombing and he took revenge on poor Patrick when he saw an opportunity. God, the stories are just unbelievable. Uh, around independence then, what happens when Ireland becomes independent in 1921? Well, Joe, it be, uh, the, really the island got caught up in that debate, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, Winston Churchill had a bee in his bonnet. He was worried about uh, defence but uh, when losing Ireland. He was a military man, you have to remember. He was head of the Admiralty, so it was high on his agenda. Uh, he fought tooth and nail with the likes of Michael Collins to hold on to it, and he was successful in 1922. So, of course, uh, Spike Island remained a British outpost for the next 17 years, but uh, the topic was back on the agenda in January 1938, and he lost out the second time round. Uh, Valera secured the release of the island and a wonderful day was had in July 11th when uh, yeah. the island was handed back to Ireland. So it's kind of like the newest part of, of independent Ireland in a sense, isn't it? It is, yes. There were three treaty ports and Loxwilly came after, uh, you know, so very much one of our youngest parts and it's another rich part of the story. It was a little like Italian 90 back in the 1930s for, for the Irish. Yeah. Something to celebrate, something to uh, cheer on in a country that hadn't really had much to yeah. celebrate in its initial decades. What's really cool about Spike as well, you have all of this rich history of, of the period you talked about, Cromwell, the famines, the War of Independence, but then you come right up to the 80s and people remember 1985 and what happens as a modern prison that Spike Island had become. Yes, I mean, it was only open a matter of months and an enormous riot broke out. Uh, over 100 prisoners, the vast majority held on the island, got out of their cells. Uh, they started torching the place. You know, there were fires. The, the prison officers were chased out of the fort. Uh, very sadly, the residents, there was still about 100 people living on the island. Yeah. They had a horrific experience, you know, chased out of their homes, running for a boat that they then saw depart because they were worried there were prison officers on the boat yeah. who would be attacked. So they then had to walk back to their homes, but the prisoners didn't touch them in any way, thank God. They were quite understanding. So, you know, a, a, an epic night in the island's history and one that had uh, a really consequences that resonate to this day. Of what consequences are they? Well, sadly, parts of the fort were burnt down, of course. You know, mm. there was a significant damage done. There were talks of closing the island as a prison. But, you know, there were later talks, a couple of decades later, about turning the island into a super prison. You know, making it one of the largest prisons in the land once again. But yeah. the people still remembered that riot and the difficulties in getting reinforcements out there and trying to deal with it. So it was decided, really, island prisons, they sound like a great idea. They're really not. Yeah. And it's... um. 
It's, it's, just, it's really well told, that story. As I say, you're jumping from decades to decades, but the prison pretty much looks as, pretty much as it was in the 1980s. It does, and unbelievably, and you mentioned earlier, you, know, you can still go to the original 1850s prison cells. Yeah. So, you know, what a wonderful thing we have in Ireland that you could start your visit off by going to the 1850s cells, but you can actually end your visit in the 2004 cells. Yeah. And you've seen the contrast there, Oliver. You're going from the dark cells, you know, they were chained to the walls for 23 and a half hours a day right. up to the modern cells where you could watch television you know you had uh, you had a TV you had a video a little I won't say more relaxed if that's not the right term yeah. but certainly not as penal as it once was uh, You're really taken by the place aren't you but you're not the CEO anymore you did, you did your years and I did, yes. I moved on now and you know, in part I felt I've actually got a book on the subject coming out, Oliver. Very and good. It, it almost would have been impossible to finish those works uh, yeah. while still there. You know, I've almost had to step outside of it to really appreciate it, see what it is and get the time now to get those works finished. And uh, so it's owned by Cork County Council, isn't it? It thing? is, fortunately. So you look now it's preserved. You know, it's going to be saved for future generations, which is very important. You know, they're undertaking works now that will maintain it and ensure everybody has it. Uh, what I really, what I mentioned at the start there is that the, the houses that you greet along the edges of the island as you come on the boat are really haunting looking. But they were just, um, they were they were just abandoned in 1985, quite recently. Even though it looks like they could be there a hundred years empty. Yes, they were again. Another consequence of the riot is the reality that you had about 200 years of a commu- an island community at that stage, both British and Irish. Of course, the Irish took over the fort in 1938, so the Irish families moved into those homes. And it's a real tragedy that one of the consequences of the riot is that they were literally told they had to leave the island. They had houses bought for them in Cove and effectively forcibly evicted a very reluctant departees. The island attracts a lot of ghost hunters. It does, yes. There's a fabulous after dark tour. If you haven't done it, Oliver, you have to get down. Of course, during the daytime, there's families on the island. They can't really go into the, too much of the detail of the hauntings yeah. or even the murderers. But if you go there at night time for the night tours, you can uh, really get into the nitty gritty. You get a more of a grown up's spooky experience. Absolutely. And, and some incredible stories there. I'm just reading here on Cork BO this morning that, um, yeah, the, the, two, the new Twilight tours of the summer season are starting from the 14th of July. That's this week, all the way into August. And so that's after night where you generally can't because it's generally empty the island at night time. There's no one Exactly. There. It's wonderful to have the place to yourself. You know, it's very mysterious. It's very quiet. You know, you have to remember there, there's no cars on the island. There's nobody living there. There's no dogs. There's no cats. You know, it's an incredibly peaceful place. So even more so at night time. Uh, just getting some text in here on it. Uh, people talking about how Churchill was really angry and deeply regretted hanging back, handing back Spike Island and Cork Harbour in 1938. And when war broke out, Cork Harbour would have been invaluable in the war effort against the Nazis, especially providing a naval presence to defeat the U-boat menace. Vital convoys carrying life-saving supplies across the Atlantic were being sunk on a massive scale by German U-boats. Um, and that's from Tom Blake and Rathfarn, who's in touch with us. So World War II is a very interesting period for the island. It was massively so. And, you know, it's incredible to think that the Irish troops who were manning that island genuinely didn't know if there was going to be an invasion by Germany or by Britain because as you say you know, the rhetoric coming from the likes of Churchill was so powerful he was even suggesting that he would take it back by force if necessary if he deemed it you know, required so those poor Irish troops you know, looking out across the harbour were wondering right who were we yeah. going to be dealing with today <laughs> Not exactly well equipped for the, no, the task at hand No not quite Delighted to hear John Crotty he's a lovely man Hi to John from all at Spike Island Spiced Rum 
<laughs> yes, would you believe there's a brilliant uh, connection there. <laughs> of course, we used to hold prisoners on the island that were being sent to the Caribbean in oh, the 1600s. Yes. Now the rum that's been made in the Caribbean has been sent back to be hand-spiced in Ireland. So a lovely little connection there. That is very clever, Mark, that you have to say. John Crotty, it's fascinating. We're looking forward to your book on Spike Island. Out next year, hopefully? Yes, looking early in the year, probably February, March. Lovely stuff. Thanks a million and good luck to you. Thanks so much, Oliver. Delight with that. And you're very welcome back. Now, Patricia Ford is an award-winning children's author with some 20 titles to her name and counting. She still goes because writers have to write. And she recently published The Girl Who Fell to Earth and last month became Laureate Nanog and she's on the line to us. She's in studio in Galway. Good morning to you, Patricia Ford. Good morning, Oliver. You are a Laureate Nanog, so congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Thank uh, you. And tell us, please, what a Laureate Nanog is or how does it come about? Yeah, so it's... Uh an honour bestowed by the Arts Council on a children's writer or illustrator. Yes. And you're nominated by people from the book industry, you know, booksellers, librarians, writers, former laureates, all those kind of people nominate you. And uh, then your job really is to promote uh, reading amongst young, young people. It must be extra special for you to, to have the real book lovers and the people in your industry and the people recommending books and feeling them and uh, excited about them every day to be the ones that decided that you're, you're, the, po- you're the laureate Nanog at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was brilliant. Yeah. And you're, there's a shortlist, you know, they, a lot of people are nominated and then they're shortlisted. So you get this ah. really scary phone call in November mm-hmm. saying uh, you're on the shortlist. And, you know, do you want to go ahead? Because if you say yes, the next call you get could be saying that you're Laureate Nanog. So up till then, it's kind of all about a crack and then you have yeah. to get serious and say, oh, yeah, I will. There's all this and, responsibility, and, yeah. Yeah, all of a sudden. And then you forget about it because that was November. And um, then in January, they phone you. Oh. And they say, um, congratulations, you're the seventh laureate in Ogan. If you're like me, you nearly fall down in a dead faint. Yeah. And say, what have I done? Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's been great. And, and it's hugely exciting. Yeah, you know, and you, yeah, should be, really you should be exciting. very, very proud of yourself because you've been okay. you've been working away for years and years. So what, what exactly is the job description of the Laureate Nanog? Well, Laureate Nanog, like I said, you're an ambassador for children's reading. Yeah. It's your job to motivate the entire country to get children reading. Mm-hmm. And also, I suppose, to promote your own sector, to promote Irish children's writers and illustrators. And for me, that's a really exciting part of it because... We're so lucky in Ireland. People don't realise we have fantastic children's writers and illustrators. Yes. Uh, And one thing I would love to do is to make sure that parents and teachers get to know more about them. Because you know yourself, when I was growing up, certainly, the only books available to us were books that were written and published very often in the UK or the US. Fantastic books. I loved Ina Blyton and all the gang. But now we have our own books. Indigenous writers and illustrators and great publishers. So it's lovely to um, to try and support that sector and get people interested There's in what we're writing. There's just a whole bank of people out there, isn't there? And I yeah. buy books for, for kids, for nieces and nephews all the time and people like Catherine Doyle and Shane Hegarty, Owen Colfer. It's just a whole world, isn't it, of, of Irish and, and, writers. And brand, like, brand new ones brand every new day. Ones, yes. There's a great woman in Cork at the moment, Leona Ford. No relation, but Leona's <laughs> written a very funny book about, um, I can't think of Something McCarthy is a complete catastrophe. I think it's Melissa McCarthy is a complete catastrophe. But it's funny. And Leona it's, Ford uh, will be Leona able to find it. Leona Cork, yeah. Very good. Um, yeah, we have great, we have great people. You get to come up with your own theme as Laureate Nanog and your own project. Yes. 
I did. And the theme I came up with was Sauli Sauli, which in Irish means imagine, imagine. Mm-hmm. And the second part of it is making it up as we go along. Oh, I love that. And that was kind of like my whole life story, really. Making it up as we go yeah. along. So I thought, yeah, I could do that. And kind of the centrepiece of that is going to be uh, next spring and going to go on a bus, think school tour, with loads of writers and illustrators down along the Wild Atlantic Way, making up stuff on the bus, meeting kids, sharing what we're doing, sharing what they're doing and generally having a great time. <laughs> no, that sounds like, even if it's raining outside, there's nothing better than sitting in the bus looking down yeah. at the rain streaming down the window because you go off and you, a bit like in school when you weren't paying attention, you're looking at the window, you're daydreaming, which you get mm. into trouble for, but you're a fan of daydreaming. Yeah, big fan. I think I wouldn't got anywhere in my life if I wasn't a really good daydreamer. And like that in school, you know, that was always the thing, you know, pay attention, stop looking out the window. Mm. But that's where it is. You know, that's where the creative space is. If you haven't time to slow down and daydream and imagine things. And sometimes I think, you know, we're so busy telling kids the opposite. We're so busy saying, you know, focus, pay attention. Don't be letting your mind wander but, you know, if we didn't let our minds wander, we wouldn't have anything in the arts. That's where it's at. Yeah. You know, we can build whole worlds just yeah. by looking out the window. And we do. <laughs> <laughs> and we do. Uh, you're also a believer in reading out loud. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of children, you know, a lot of parents would say to me, you know, my child is a reluctant reader or very resistant to reading. And I think, you know, we're all lazy. Sometimes mm. I'd get a book, you know, from my book club and I just think, I don't like the sound of this or I don't like the first two pages. And with children, that's heightened because it could be in the first page they'd see a word they can't pronounce or they don't recognise or the name of the character, they can't say it. So if you, as the adult, read the first couple of chapters aloud to them, no matter what age they are, uh, get them into it, like get them to the point where there's kind of a cliffhanger. I guarantee you, they won't, they'll absolutely want to read the rest of it. Yeah. But, but it can be hard for them to get going, you know, just to get started. So reading out aloud, I hate when they did it in school, I have to say. I used to be so embarrassed having to read out loud. Oh yeah, you had to read out loud, yeah. It was the worst thing and trying to find the place where they left off. But <laughs> weren't there great kind of ways of putting you off a book? You know, read it out loud, first of all, whether you're shy or whatever yeah, you yeah. are, read out loud. Then after that, you always had to write a piece saying why you liked it. Now, by then I hated it because I had to write the piece about why I liked it. It was like everything we did in school. Do you remember that? Like if you went, had a really good day and you went on a school tour, yeah. then they'd ruin it because when you come home, you had to write about why you liked essay. it. yeah. Yeah. Imagine now, you know, now if you went to a party and you came home and your family said, well, now, Oliver, you have to sit down now and so, write, yeah. write 500 words about why you liked it. And a little illustration at the top. Yeah, <laughs> if you could manage it. What everybody said, uh, and that'll be <laughs> that'll be for the defamation hearing. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, it's a, it's a really it's a really good idea, and I, I like the idea that, that that there is a lorry to know going around telling kids that it's okay to day, daydream and yeah. build their universe and so on. And and Oliver, isn't it a great sign of us, you know, as a country? that we have a laureate for, for the big people and we have a laureate in Anog. It just shows you what mass we have on books yes. and literature. And not every country has that, you know. So I think, like, I really want to tell kids as well, you're really lucky that you live here. Whether you live here, if you can trace your family back to Finn McCool or you arrived a week ago, you're really lucky to be here when it comes to this because mm. we're big storytellers. We love telling stories. We love books. Yeah. Uh, and not everybody has that. 
So I think I think that's a great thing about living here. No, you're dead right. We just ha- and the fact that we give children's books their due because sometimes, uh, mm. certainly in other countries, they don't get marketed half enough, do they? And all the no. talk is about the. And it's thing. hard here too. Don't get me wrong. It's it's hard to get you know. Um, it's hard to get column inches, it's hard to get media because there's a lot of competition. Yes. But we do things like this where we support people, you know. And during COVID, the Arts Council were really good supporting artists. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we're lucky. And it would be terrible to lose that, do you know. Um, like the, our whole thing about storytelling, I think we, we've been brilliant at that always. Uh, I'd hate to see that going. Patricia, you write for, you write Ask Gaelga and Ask Berla for all ages. Yeah. Uh, was <laughs> yeah. it inevitable that you were going to become a writer? Uh, yeah, I think so, because I wasn't good at anything else. Um, I was really good at um, daydreaming and thinking up things. I remember I remember, I was talking to my family about this recently. We didn't have a dishwasher. It was me and my five sisters at home and we used to wash the dishes, you know, in turn every night. Yeah. And when I was very small, I remember I'd be drying the cutlery and in my head, the cutlery were all families like the knives and forks with the mummies and daddies and the big spoons with the grandparents wow. and the teaspoons were the babies. And then I could spend, you know, an hour after that playing with the cutlery yeah. because, you know, I had so many soap opera kind of things going on with it the cutlery. Became a little family, little puppeteer yeah. with the cutlery. Yeah, I'd say they could take you away for that now, <laughs> carry you <laughs> off. But um, yeah, I think it was in a way because I just loved, I loved making stuff up. And I um, and I loved reading. My mother used to say that she didn't see anything but the top of my head until I was twelve, because I was stuck in a book. You know, I did things like I I fell down the stairs at least twice whilst reading a book coming down. Um, <laughs> you know, I walked into lamppost. That is the God's truth. I walked into a lamppost one time because I was coming from the library reading a book. And we lived in the middle of town and I walked bang into the lamppost and I knocked myself out. Is that so funny? And I'd say you were given out to sometimes for having your head stuck in a book, whereas nowadays oh, yeah. phones and, and iPads I, and so on. You know, I couldn't do maths or any of those things, never could. And while maths would be going on in school, I'd be reading a book under the desk and inevitably getting caught because I wasn't clued in enough to keep an eye on the environment around me. So the next thing you know, a hand would clamp on your shoulder and I'd be caught reading, you know, Nancy Drew. <laughs> while they were doing equations. Yeah, maths just wasn't your forte. No. And then when I was teaching, I always say, you could point out the children that I taught in Galway because they're great at reading and writing. They love books and they can't do sums. <laughs> okay, right. And were you, you were primary school, were you? Yeah, I was pri- primary school. I went to the University College of Galway here and yeah. uh, when I finished, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went off and at the time you could do one year in Dublin in St. Patrick's College to become a primary teacher. So I did that and I taught for about nine years and wow. loved it. What did you, you said you, you tried a couple of things and discovered you weren't mm. any good at them. What else did you try? <laughs> well, I was an actress for a very short while. Oh, right. I thought I'd do that. Yeah. I really thought I'd have a go at that. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, I'd been a waitress and I was a very good waitress. I could have actually stuck at that. I was excellent as so a waitress. You're good because with cutlery. Keep... When you start talking to the cutlery, there's uh, <laughs> yeah. side of the side thought, That's enough now. We'll send her <laughs> on her way. So um, fairly shortly, I, I took off. Then I was teaching and I took time off to write a book. Because as you can see, making it up as you go along, I yes. was totally disciplined. I said, yes, this is what I'm going to do now. And I took a year off. And at Christmas of that year, I was asked to be director of Galway Arts Festival, as it was at the time. And of course, in my very disciplined state, I threw the book across the room and said, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> so I did that for five years and then I went back. I, I wrote a lot for television, for children's programming with um, RT at first and then TG Carr. Um, 
so yeah, so I was the writing, always making the, it up. The writing the, yeah. uh, bone was being was being tickled, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. And when I was teaching and reading children's books to my classes, I started very arrogantly to think, oh, maybe I could do this myself. You know, I've read so many of them now. I could, I could maybe have a go. Um, is the secret to writing a book just sticking at it? Because you you said you started, flung the book away mm. and uh, yeah. didn't come back to it. And that's the kind of story for a lot of writers, isn't it? They start a thing and they don't finish or know how. Absolutely. And what, what usually happens, I find, is you have a great idea, you start the book. And of course, the hardest part of a book is the middle of it. So you get to the middle. And if you're like me, you say, well, I know what's wrong here. This was a terrible idea. Mm. And I have lots of ideas. I'm going to dump this one. I'm going to start another one because I have this other great idea. But the trouble is, <clears throat> that's how, n- how not to finish. You know, you, you have to keep going. Stick with the idea you have. Even if you think now it's the worst idea ever, stick with it, get to the finish line. Because you don't have anything really until you get there. When you get to the end, it's very, well, it's not very easy, but it's a lot easier to polish that up and make it better than it is to start all over again. Yeah. And, the, and the stuff I write, which is like big speculative fiction, <laughs> you know, it, you inevitably are going to run into big questions you can't answer in the middle of the book. You know, if you start speculating about what could be like my first novel, The Wordsmith, was about a group of people who only had 500 words. They were the only words they were allowed to use. It was set in you the know, future. It was set in the future after global warming. And mm-hmm. there's only this one gang left and um, they, they're they only allowed 500 words because the fellow who runs the world thinks, well, you talked yourself into so much trouble <laughs> before the, before global warming. You were all telling each other it'll all be grand. So now you've only 500 words. But then you're in the middle of the book, Oliver, and you're thinking, how do, how do I do this now? Because I need that word and I need this word. Right. And how am I going? You know, so that's normally in the old days, I would have given up there and said, yeah, well, that was a really bad idea. 500 words. I'm not going to do that. But in this case, I did finish it. And um, that that was kind of the first time I realised I could write a novel from beginning to end. That was your, one of your most successful books, wasn't it? The Wordsmith. Yeah, it was. The it Wordsmith. Had, it had a different name in America. Yeah, they called it The List. Because you see, Oliver... In America, they said nobody would understand Wordsmith. They'd never figure it out. Unlike the Irish people who figured it out effortlessly. That's amazing. It's another yeah. word they don't so have. They, they called it the list. Did they make any other edits? The only other edit they made was there was one very chaste kiss. The mm. book is aimed at kind of 12 plus. There was a very chaste kiss in it and uh, the Americans removed it. Can't have kissing. There will be no kissing. Because there were schools in America that wouldn't take the book for that age if there was a kiss in it. Wow. So now I've, I've abolished really have kissing. Gone, yeah, they've really gone uh, back to where we were um, from roughly the yeah. 1920s up to very familiar. Yes, very I knew familiar. exactly what was wrong. Your latest one is The Girl Who Fell to Earth. And, and you're, yeah. you're informed by your topics, aren't you, by actually chatting to children and going around in your business as the Laureate Nanogue. So, so tell us how they've informed uh, the idea behind this book. Yeah, well, um, the children I noticed recently, we talk a lot about where they get their information from. And in this book, this book says that this planet, or yeah, that the pe- humankind was created a thousand years ago by another planet called Terros. And they gave us everything. What do you think you know about dinosaurs and Romans and Greeks? They gave you all that. They gave you the history and the archaeology. They even gave you some of your memories. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's only a thousand years old and now they're fed up of us because we're destroying the planet and they send a young girl called Arya and her father to finish the human experiment. So they're going to get rid of us for once and for all. And Arya comes to Earth believing that we're very bad people and that we don't live very long. On, on her planet they live forever. So here we don't live very long. So her people have told her that we don't form relationships. 
we don't love one another because we're not going to be here for long. So when she comes to Earth and discovers when she meets a young girl her own age that that's not the case and we're not as bad as we were painted and everything she's been told about us is a lie. Uh-huh. She has to try to save Earth but also save herself because she's gone over to the dark side now. It's all very, yeah. very familiar, isn't it? And that's the, yeah. the best fantasy is rooted in, in reality. Absolutely. And I had to very quickly get them to Earth because I would find it difficult to sustain the sci-fi thing, you know, everything being unreal. But she's here on Earth, but she brings with her some of the things from her own culture. Like she has a memory disk so she only stores kind of recent memories in her brain and the rest is downloaded to a disc. So she wants to remember when she was five, she has to put the disc in her ear and go back to that. Mm. And it, we're told in the book that that this is why we have things like Alzheimer's and our brains are overloaded. I was trying, you see, Albert, to find things that might happen in the future for mm. us. What, what might we invent or where would we get to? Yeah. One of the funniest ones was I was doing a bit of research and I met a lovely um, scientist here in the university and we were talking about the book and I was asking him those kind of things, you know, what might we invent? And he said, the next big frontier, I think, he said, is death itself, which at the end of the day is is a disease and we might be able to cure it. Yes. Uh, And he was saying how he was working on this microscopic organism that you couldn't kill, couldn't kill it no matter what you did. And he said to me, the day I can kill it, when I find out what's keeping it alive... I'll have the secret of eternal life. Of course, I said to him, why are we here drinking coffee? Get back to the lab quick. Yeah, yeah. I don't have that much time. This reminds uh, me of towards the end of that Sapiens book that sold millions and millions around the world. Mm-hmm. That he talks about the amortals that are, are going to yeah. rise at some point and the billionaires are already working on that for all of humanity. No, just for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and if you talk to children about these things, you know, you're yes. asking them, is it good to live forever? Or is it not good to live forever? You know, I could listen to them all day. They what do they say? Ideas. Well, it's funny, you know, it's kind of gender based. A lot of the boys oh, would say, yes, what, I want to live forever. Um, <laughs> some of the girls would talk about people getting sick and, you know, maybe not being themselves at the end of their lives. And that wouldn't be great. Wow. Um, but they're they're well able to discuss philosophy. You know, they they mm. love talking about uh, what could be and what might be and, and what we might invent and what might happen. They're sort of undaunted, aren't they, by all the... Uh the, 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 the crushing disappointment that is adult independence. Yeah. <laughs> like, and like, also, you know, people, children. Yeah, hello children. People, yeah. people are always saying, you know, oh, the next generation, they're not the same. They're on their phones and they don't have the same imagination. Couldn't be less true. In my experience, I, I did a book called To the Island, which was about, it's a picture book about a magical island that's said to appear off the coast of Galway every seven years called mm. Hybrazel. That, that bit's true. And it was a picture book. And I was asked, my mother used to always say the fairies disappeared when electricity came in. Meaning that once you couldn't see the shadows and the dark corners, yeah. you know, you knew. But That's I was asking the kids why they thought that was. And these are small children. And I couldn't get over every explanation they came up. They said things like, well, the fairies were in charge of the candles and making sure the house didn't burn down. So when electricity came in, they were redundant and, you know, they, that was got rid of them. But the Not one the thing they never said, they never, ever said, because there are no fairies. Like yes, there was course, an okay, absolute right. conviction there were fairies. Yes. It was just, where did they go? As, as indeed there was uh, across as much of, course of the country. Um, as of course there yeah. are still fairies and, and the belief yeah. and particularly that, that mirage, the high Brazil, was it? High Brazil. High Brazil, yeah. Uh, um, that people thought they could see off the west of Ireland. Well, um, it was on the maps in the, I think it was back in the 1600s, uh-huh. it was on the maps. 
1600. Yeah. Um, there's some lovely text messages coming in to you, Patricia Ford. Could oh, send a huge congratulations to Patricia on a great achievement. I'm writing since 2015, trying so hard to get a publisher to publish my children's story. I am still trying. We'll keep trying till it happens, says Patricia Finn. Well, that's the way to go, Patricia Finn. Keep trying. Keep on believing. Make it up yeah. as you go along. Make it up. Easy <laughs> to understand how Patricia became Laurie Nanogue. Very interesting, engaging speaker. She used the term having mass on something. I love that. I don't hear it very <laughs> much anymore. It's a pity. No wonder her fellow writers have aardvass on her. Very good. <laughs> Thank and you. And The Wordsmith is an absolutely brilliant book. I'm a teacher. It's on the indicative list for junior cycle students of English. I was trying to select a book for my students. I couldn't put it down. It's so well written, enjoyable, and there's so much food for thought in it about the importance of language and words and reading widely and understanding the broad world especially for today's world it brings up great conversation in classrooms so that's thank you from a very happy teacher Patricia Ford so lots of lovely praise from you and uh, uh, congratulations on being the laureate Nanogue and uh, the girl who fell to earth Little Island Books is publishing yes uh, Little Island Books so Patricia Ford good morning and uh, enjoy looking out uh, looking for high Brazil out off the <laughs> west coast for the weekend in the rain today I in will, the rain yeah you might see it thanks a million oh, thank you very much have a lovely thank weekend you for me. Slogan you